Good morning, everybody. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. The seventh chapter of the letter to the Hebrew Christians during the days of the early church, beginning with verse 1. The writer of Hebrews writes, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, quote-unquote, and then also king of Salem, meaning, quote, king of peace, unquote, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. The book of Hebrews here is referring to a story that happened in Genesis chapter 14. After Abraham had gone to battle and God had given him victory, he meets this king who's also a priest, a symbolic person of Jesus Christ. We don't know where he came from or what his genealogy is. We know that his name means king of righteousness and that he's king of a place called Salem, which means peace, Salam or Shalom. He's the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, and the king of peace, Shalom, Salam, without father, without mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, was made like the Son of God, who was a king forever. Consider how great this man was to whom Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. The writer of Hebrews here, for the sake of the Jewish reader, is drawing a parallel of the priesthood of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, not with that of David or with that of Levi, but with that of Melchizedek, someone who preceded the law. Abraham had a covenant with God. He was justified by faith. Apart from the law, the law was not given until the ministry of Moses and the latter part of the book of Exodus, the law was given. So here, a parallel is drawn of Jesus with Melchizedek, saying that Jesus is this kind of king, is what the writer is implying, and saying that he received tithe. Verse 8 says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, to whom it is witness that he lives. Now, we don't know for sure if Melchizedek was an angel or was Jesus himself manifest in the pre-incarnate manifestation, some that theologians call a theophany or not, but he definitely was a picture of a king and priest to whom Jesus would be. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us clearly today, that he would hear, we would hear your heart. And that you would speak to us on the subject that I have prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to speak to you on the subject entitled, Is Tithing a New Testament Practice? After completing our series on tough questions thinking people are asking, I wanted to conclude with a question that few are asking, but one that needs to be asked and answered. Because so many winds of doctrine are blowing through the land on this topic, that is, the subject of giving. Some mindlessly hear these words and don't consider them that tithing belongs to the Old Testament, tithing was under the law, and is no longer in existence today. 
So let's consider this question. Is tithing a New Testament practice? From TV, radio, internet, and the printed page, we can hear, read, and see various views and extremes, ranging from promises of hundredfold returns and the need to name your seed or give right now while God has given their angels their assignments for the new year, as well as a blasphemous selling of God's blessings like receive a new anointing times 10 for $2,500. I think today's charlatans would have accepted Simon the sorcerer's money, which he offered, but Peter refused for the ability to give the Holy Spirit baptism by the laying on of hands in Acts 8. Other extremes may vary, however, from lesser heard disbeliefs and practices like not giving it all or only giving when one feels like it to believing that tithing is no longer valid and is not a New Testament practice because Jesus fulfilled the law. It is this belief or unbelief that I would like to attempt to address here and now. Is tithing a New Testament practice? I believe it is, and I'm going to give you five reasons why. I believe tithing is a New Testament practice. Number one, tithing, like Melchizedek, pre-existed the law, as did some other things that the law later included, but is one of the few things the law included that Jesus did not fulfill. Let me give you some examples. The Sabbath pre-existed the law. It came into being when God rested on the seventh day after he created the earth in six days, the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2.2. Animal sacrifices, blood sacrifice pre-existed the law. In God slaying the animals to clothe man's nakedness in Genesis 3.21, and then later when Cain and Abel offered up offerings to the Lord, Abel's blood sacrifice was, was accepted. Prayer pre-existed the law, and yet it was included in the law. When Seth was born and Eve said, I have gotten another man from the Lord, Genesis 4.26 says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then as we've referred to earlier here in Genesis 14, tithing occurred for the first time when Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils that God had blessed him with in battle in Genesis chapter 14. Faith preexisted the law, and yet it was part of the law. You had to exercise faith to be obedient to it, I believe. Genesis 15:6, Abraham was justified as righteous because he believed God. Circumcision pre-existed the law, and yet it was included in the law. It first came into being in Genesis 17, when God made the covenant with Abraham. He said, this would be the sign of your covenant. How many are glad that, how many men are glad that Jesus fulfilled the law of circumcision? Passover pre-existed the law, and singing pre-existed the law. Uh, Israel was delivered through the, uh, the plague of Passover that they now celebrate annually this time of year. Um, and it happened before the law was given and is recorded in Exodus 12. Singing began as recorded in the scriptures, as I understand it, in Exodus 15. When Pharaoh's armies washed up on the other side of the banks of the Red Sea, Israel danced. Miriam played a tambourine and they sang a song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and riders thrown into the sea. The Lord my God, my strength, my song has now become my victory. So here's a list of 
uh, eight things, Sabbath, sacrifices, praying, tithing, faith, circumcision, Passover, and singing. These things preexisted the law, and yet they were included in the law. Now, some of those things Jesus Christ fulfilled. He fulfilled the Sabbath in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, basically said he is a Sabbath. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or I will give you Sabbath. I will be your rest. I will. Through a personal relationship with Christ, we can receive rest that the law never could give. And all man could do was hope to receive rest on that day he just laid around, not realizing it was a day to contemplate on his relationship with God and to long for the Savior who was to come. Animal sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's a ton of scriptures about him being our sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 13 through 15 is an example of that. Circumcision has been fulfilled. Christ died for us. There was a cutting away of his flesh. <laughs> Beyond circumcision, the covenant was cut in his flesh. The penalty of death for breaking the covenant with God was received by Jesus so that now we have an unbreakable covenant because he received our penalty and then arose from the dead as our testator. So, thank God for Jesus. He paid for our penalty. And so now for us, a symbol of our covenant is no longer circumcision because Christ has fulfilled that. The symbol of our covenant that we have with him is the Lord's table, communion. It's also water baptism. These are rather painless, somewhat enjoyable events in the life of the believer. Passover has been fulfilled. We'll be celebrating Passover this Wednesday, not as a work of the law, but just as a means of understanding and appreciating Jesus and how he fulfilled this amazing event called the Feast of Passover. Number two. Wait a minute. Before we go on to number two, we saw that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, he fulfilled animal sacrifices, he fulfilled circumcision, he fulfilled the Passover, but we have no record of him fulfilling singing because we have a reason to sing. We have no record of him fulfilling the need for faith, which preexisted the law. We have no record of him fulfilling the need for us to pray. Thank God he prays for us. He ever lives to make intercessions for the saints, but there is a place for prayer in the life of the believer. Even though it preexisted the law, was included in the law, Christ did not fulfill it, therefore it has a place in our life. The same goes for tithing. I could be wrong, but I've looked. I don't see it anywhere. If you find it somewhere where Jesus fulfilled tithing, please enlighten me. But in my life, he has blessed the practice. I believe it's still it is existence for today. It preexisted the law. It was included in the law, just like prayer and singing and faith. And it continues to be a principle by which we should live, just like prayer and singing and faith are practices in the Christian life. Now, number two. After rebuking those who tithe very meticulously while neglecting more important things, who knows there's more important things than tithing, like justice, mercy, faith, and the love of God, Jesus went on to say that tithing ought to be done. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, down to the smallest spice you guys are tithing. And, and I bet they tithe to the nearest grain. 
and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Same thing in Luke 11. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. It's amazing how we can use religious exercise to substitute reality. Amen? You cannot gain by sacrifice what you lose through disobedience. Ed Cole said that. Um, Saul wanted to buy God off with animal sacrifices to pay for his disobedience. And the priest Samuel said, uh, disobedience is, what was it he said? Obedience? Yes, say it again. There you go. Rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. And uh, to, to obey is better than sacrifice, is what he said. Um, here's a humorous story. A priest was walking home one night in the dark when he was accosted by a robber who pulled a gun on him and demanded your money or your life. As the priest reached his hand in his coat pocket, the thief saw his clerical collar and said, Oh, Father, I, I see that you're a priest. Never mind. You can go now. The priest, surprised at the unexpected show of mercy, had his hand on a candy bar that was in his pocket. So he pulled it out and offered it to him. And the robber said, no, thank you. I'm giving up candy for Lent. <laughs> Must have been Tony Soprano. Number three, Jesus told his followers to make disciples and to teach them to observe everything he commanded. The Great Commission, the underlined words, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So I think a case could be made that he said that there were things more important than tithing, but tithing should be practiced. All right? Reason number four, I believe. Abraham, whose children we are by faith, gave tithe to a king, Melchizedek, who is symbolic of Jesus Christ. Now, in our covenant that we have, Abraham is known as our father. We non-Jews have been grafted into the vine of the original Jew, Abraham himself, who had a covenant with God before he was circumcised, before he was declared righteous by faith, he had a covenant. Because God pursued him and he responded. And so as our father of faith, he tied to someone who certainly was a picture of Jesus Christ, we read this earlier. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe is tenth. If you tithe 1%, that's not a tithe. You 1%ed, but you didn't tithe. All right. Or I guess that could be a tithe of your tithe. It's true. Uh, who made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also... Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So it is believed by theologians, Melchizedek could have been some type of angelic being. Others believe he could have been a representation of God, what, what uh, scholars call a theophany. Um, and others believe it's just symbolic. The fact um, 
no, we don't know according to the scriptures where he came from, what he was. That's the picture of Jesus. And verse 4 says, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And um, verse 8 goes on to say, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. My fifth point is no longer threatened by the curse of the law. The giving of the early church exceeded tithing. Jesus came and settled it once and for all. The law was fulfilled. Amen? And the curtain in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, revealing the fact the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in there, and their religion was bankrupt anyway. He exposed the shabbiness of their religion, the fact it wasn't working for them. And so um, he put an end to it. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, put an end to it. And so being freed from this curse of the law, what kind of givers were these people? In Acts 2 it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, if you read that whole chapter, you'll see there were people there from at least 15 different nations from all over the world, and the church on its first day of existence became 3,000 members strong from all over the world. And so these people lived communally for, I think, around eight years around the city of Jerusalem, having church, being discipled, uh, as the disciples were obeying, teaching the commandments of Christ to them until uh, persecution came. They began to scatter and go out back to their homes, and the gospel was spread. Acts 4 says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So they went beyond tithing. They were given everything to the cause of the church, to meet one another's needs. They were given it all. And it was such a serious season that if you gave something and lied about it, you could die. You find that out in the next chapter, chapter 5. Explain that to me, Pastor. I can't. I should have been dead years ago. So five reasons why I believe tithing is a New Testament practice. Tithing preexisted the law, as did some other things. The law included, but it is one of a few things Jesus did not fulfill. That's what I believe. After rebuking those who tithe very meticulously while neglecting more important things like justice, mercy, faith, and the love of God, Jesus said tithing ought to be done. Jesus told his followers to make disciples and teach them to observe everything he commanded. Abraham, whose seed we are by faith, gave tithe to a king, Melchizedek, who is symbolic of Jesus Christ. No longer threatened by the curse of the law, the giving of the early church exceeded tithing. And what we've heard this morning, I've attempted to communicate why I believe tithing is a New Testament practice. We have seen how tithing preexisted the law like some other things, and we're also incorporated into the law that Jesus fulfilled. Thank God for Jesus. Amen? Finally, in the book of Acts, we saw that at least while living communally, the early church started out giving way beyond what could be called the tithe. Is tithing a New Testament practice? I believe it is. Now this always brings up the next question. Should all tithing go to the local church? 
Before I get into that, let me just just speak personal testimony on tithing. I think that giving to God a tenth of what He's prospered us with through the local church is a New Testament practice and can testify that it works wonderfully. Starting out as a teenager while tithing to my local church from my first real job, God has been faithful to enable us to give beyond our tithes every year. It is amazing how we can do more with 90% post-tithe income than we can with 100% pre-tithe income. So we give it first. The reason I can say that is we tried a few times and found out after tithe it seemed to work better for us. We have seen that tithing through the local church makes a functioning church congregation like ours possible without any unscriptural gimmicks or having to preach on giving all the time. I believe the last time I preached on giving was 2001. I've mentioned it a few times, but never a sermon dedicated to it like this. Now, back then it was six weeks, <laughs> so it must have worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at the tithing boxes on the wall. Tithing through the local church is something that God continues to bless. I see it happening year in and year out for those who practice it faithfully. While his blessings are not for sale and no one can do enough to deserve his mercy, God does reward those who tithe consistently. I believe that. Now, back to this question. Should all tithing go to the local church? I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to ask questions that are rhetorical. And, of course, that's a way of answering, amen, what I, what I think. Should the local church compete with other ministries and parachurch organizations? Should the local church compete with other ministries and parachurch organizations? Should a local church compete with other ministries and parachurch organizations? We're working in this thing together, amen? But I'm telling you, if the local church falls, all these other ministries fall because they lean on the church to make them strong. If Beth Moore has a great uh, Bible study series, what's the best avenue to get that out? Through the local churches. just is. If, if uh, well, I don't want to start calling names and stuff, but um, I was watching a well-known TV broadcast where the host argued with his co-host as to whether or not the tithe should go to the local church. And the co-host, her name was Sheila Walsh, she disagreed with the man. And it wasn't many weeks before she was off the air. It wasn't many years before that host sold his network that had been paid for by the partial tithe of his supporters over the years, sold it to the Fox network. You can do it. A local church, we just can't pull off stunts like that. There's more accountability to what happens with money in the local church. Amen? Number two, should the local church become like other charities? Should we compete with the Red Cross, the United Way? Did you know the Red Cross only has to give, it only has to give, by law, 5% of what's given to it? So those things you see about Haiti, call you know, 1-800-HELP-HAITI, Red Cross, they only have to give 5% of your gift to them and use 95 for operating expenses. So you're totally in the dark as to what's going to happen with your giving through some of these agencies. Should the local church become like that? Use needs to get money to, to fudge operating expenses out of? Obviously, the Red Cross needs to operate, right? Although I think the uh, Salvation Army is much better mileage for our money because they're there for the long haul. Red Cross makes a big splash when disasters first happen. And as soon as they can get out of there, they're gone. And if you don't think I know what I'm talking about, talk to me after service. I can tell you several examples. 
Number three, should the local church be strong financially? Should we be paying our bills? Should our lights be on? How many are glad we're not sweating and swatting mosquitoes? How many grew up in a church like that? How many want to go out and sell peanut brittle door to door? What kind of witness is that? Sending kids out door to door selling peanut brittle for the building fund. Now obviously, if, if you're hurting financially, that's the way peanut brittle, I don't want to... Man, I've dug myself in a grave here. If it wasn't for peanut brittle, many churches wouldn't exist today because it helps people through tough times. Amen. But I don't think our nonprofit status should be used to compete with the candy maker in town who's trying to make a living. Number four, should your local church meet your needs and be financially accountable to you? Now, I'm not saying we're doing this, but should we be doing this? We should. Amen. So we have a still out there on the information booth, and if it's not on there, it's usually inside it, is a financial report from last year. We want questions. We're begging for questions. Number five, should your local church embarrass you? Can I bring visitors today or is he going to preach on giving? See, I'm embarrassing you today. I'm sorry. If you're a guest today, please know I didn't, I haven't done this since 2001, as I can recall. In your bulletin day is a pamphlet that begins with these words. The vision and desire of Generations Church is for the regular expenses and our ongoing ministries to be supported by the faithful tithing of our membership and for church leadership to maintain a budget within this kind of consistent giving. How can you maintain a budget if giving isn't consistent? And then you've got to pass the plate just to meet budget. I mean, that's embarrassing. Congregations that operate otherwise might often be resorted might, might often be forced to resort to money-raising campaigns, annual pledge, drive, pledge drives, mailing out invoices. These are things churches do. Bills and making emotional appeals to raise what is necessary just to keep the doors open. Some may yet include raffles and bingo and fish fries in order to be able to pay their bills. Such has never been the case here at Generations Church. To God be the glory, we've never had to compete with Olita's cash, catfish. <laughs> Who thinks the local church should be out in the fundraising marketplace with things like the Girl Scouts? No. Whenever we do receive special offerings or raise extra funds, it has always been for more than, always been, thank God, for more than the regular expenses and ongoing ministries of Generations Church. To our faithful tithers, we say thank you for your faithfulness. You have helped make this a reality possible. The practice of tithing is a scriptural giving of one's tithe to the Lord in his work. The tithe is 10% of a faithful tither's wages and profits that are being given in faith towards God who meets their needs and enables them to be able to give on a regular basis in this way. While there are more important things in the Christ follower's life like justice, mercy, faith, and the love of God, Jesus gave instructions to tithe. And then there's the challenge in Malachi. Prove me now in this and see if I will not open the doors of heaven. Now we know it's not scriptural to tempt God, yet in this particular passage, God says, try me. And I've seen people in the New Testament era apply that, try it, and God forbid that you should have to help them move. It's a lot of work. Blessings you don't have room to contain. 
I thought it was funny, but anyway. <laughs> Tithing is an, oppor- is an ideal opportunity to express our living faith in our living God. St. John of the Cross said, What does it profit you to give God one thing if he asks of you another? Consider what it is that God wants and then do that. You will, as a, as a result, better satisfy your heart than if you had done otherwise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And I thank you, Lord, for people who are faithful to tithe. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that hasn't stepped out in faith and begun to obey you in the tithe, I pray, Lord, in your name that you would um, speak to their heart and show them, Lord, how to get started and add this dimension to their New Testament Christian life. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for those who are giving to other places, Lord. I ask you to bless them. But I pray, Lord, you'd help them to reconsider to be sure that their gifts are being used for what they're said to be used for. God, I thank you for our elders and for those that help manage the resources of this house. I ask God for continued favor and blessing and wisdom. And Lord, we look forward to the greater things that we'll be able to do as you increase the tithing income of this local house. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say from my heart, thank you for your faithfulness in tithing. Thank you for the honor of pastoring a church where you don't have to mention money every Sunday. You just give. The plate's not even passed unless it's for something special, a guest minister or something. You just continue to give so faithfully. I'm just in awe and thank you for it. And thank you for, thank you for your faithfulness in giving extra to helping youth go to camp and retreats and even responding to, to uh, letters from people who want to take mission trips. Our own daughter is in Sierra Leone today. I have a picture of her. Just I like how I squeeze this in. In Sierra Leone with a team of nurses from Baylor, Dallas. Wonder which one she is. She wouldn't be the clown in the middle, would she? She sends greetings and her appreciation to those of you that responded. I say thank you for your, for your faithfulness to the Lord. I say thank you for your faithfulness to the Lord before you ever came to this church. It's not about this church. It's about the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make the parachurch ministries prosper. Give them, Lord, strategies and how to manage the resources you have for them. And, Lord, I pray that any church or ministry that should be shut down, I pray, Lord, that you cut the lights out so that it would no longer be a parasite to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. If you're here today and you'd like to receive prayer for healing or for wisdom or for provision or in responding to the word that you've heard or about anything else, we'd love to pray for you. So I'm going to call our ministry team forward. And if you'd like to receive prayer today, I encourage you to come forward with them. If the ministry team comes, if you guys could come and line up across the front here on this side and on this side of the steps, we're here to pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would draw those today whose bodies need to be healed, whose hearts need to be renewed, whose minds need to be renewed, whose wisdom needs to be increased. Give us words to pray. Lord, may the gifts of the Spirit flow today up here and in the seats and out in the foyer and even in the parking lot, Lord. May the ministry of Jesus Christ flow through this church as your people in Jesus' name.
Amen. God of my living, there in my breathing, God in my waking, God in my sleeping, God in my resting, there in my working, God in my thinking, God in my speaking, be my everything, 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 be my everything. Be my everything, be my everything. God in my hoping, there in my dreaming, God in my watching, God in my waiting, God in my laughing, there in my wish. God in my hurting, God in my healing, be my much for worshiping with us today. I hope the word spoke to your heart. If you disagree with the way you've been thinking, just just think again. You know, the local church is the primary agency of the kingdom of God and the earth. And I recognize ministries and parachurch ministries that's having their place. But they have to raise funds all the time. The more money you send them, the more airtime they're going to buy to ask for more money. That's just the way it is. So surely the kingdom of God can have one agency on earth that doesn't ask for money all the time. It has to be the local church. So think of it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of peace and the King of righteousness, who receives our tithe. Amen. God bless you. But God in my hope, there in my dreaming, God in my watching, God in my waiting, God in my laughing, there in my weeping, God in my hurting.